The opportunity is not equal, and the rules of the game are not constructed in a way to encourage participation where opportunity exists, or to put another way, the rules of the game are not constructed by women. We need to be in this together, and uh, that regardless of political stripes, and in fact, especially because we can share good ideas that work for women from one party to another, we have to do this together. Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you so much for making the time to be here. Uh, we have an absolutely wonderful crowd of people gathered here today. Uh, this room includes federal, provincial, municipal officials. It includes classes of students who've chosen to be here. It includes people working in organizations seeking to empower women. Uh, it also includes uh, many interesting stories. We heard from a, a dad who decided to bring his son here today as part of his graduation gift. Yes, yes. So if you have been tuning in to the podcast, No Second Chances, you've heard me say this many, many times, but we live in a country where we have had more than 300 first ministers, and only 12 have been women. And I am very proud uh, to say that all 12 have chosen to be a part of this project, and that many of them have also chosen to be a part of this event today, making this the largest gathering of female first ministers in Canadian history. Fantastic. This is a remarkable group of women, and I cannot wait to hear from them today. So many of you will know the story of how No Second Chances started. I ran as a candidate in the 2018 election in Ontario, and I heard a lot of comments during that campaign about our female premier and female leader. And when the campaign was done, it was some of those comments that I just couldn't get out of my mind. And so in looking at the experiences of the only 12 women who have served in this most senior political role, I was pretty disappointed as a Canadian, to be honest, to first of all find out that there were only 12, and that there are some concerning patterns when you look at the political fortunes of these women. Women tend to rise in difficult political circumstances. On average, they serve about half the length of time as men. And of course, as we know, the title, No Second Chances, when they run for re-election, they tend to lose. And so I think that says a lot about us as Canadians, and it raises a lot of questions that are certainly worth looking into. And that is exactly what this project has been all about. Now, there is a very big difference between a good idea and a well-executed project. And in this case, that difference is Canada 2020. From the very first conversation with Executive Director Alex Patterson, he believed in this idea. The 2020 uh, board, their sustaining partners, project partners, have all really come behind this project. And I will say it has been an absolute delight to work with the talented team. And I think we should give them, if you've been listening to the podcast, you will know how much work goes into this. Aaron Reynolds, Sarah Turnbull, Mira Maud, Carolyn, Tina. We've also worked with the very talented video crew at Webisodes, Adam Kaplan and Sammy Roach. 
Uh, and I will also say that these projects don't happen without the support. And in this particular case, MasterCard stepped up in a big way to support this project. And without them, this would not have happened. So thank you very much to everyone who has brought this idea to life. I will say it's been far more successful than uh, even we hoped at the beginning. And this started from the first video that was released, which was launched on a Friday night. And by Sunday, 160,000 Canadians had tuned into it. We are seeing thousands more people tune into the podcast each week. It's been covered in most national media sources. But the most important indicator of success here has been the messages from people who have been inspired by these women. This includes, we received a note from an executive on Bay Street who said it made him think a bit more about how to support women in leadership. We've received notes from many, many young women in particular who, in hearing these stories, are feeling inspired to run. So I just want to say a sincere thanks uh, to the women for being so open and willing to share your stories. It really is powerful. And that is exactly uh, what we're here to do today. I know you're not here to hear me speak. You are here to hear from these remarkable women. And so without any further ado, let's get started. I am pleased to introduce our first speaker of the day. As I mentioned, there's a lot going on in Alberta right now. When we were looking at the news. We were a little bit worried of whether this would happen or not, but Rachel Notley is here, which is a true testament to her commitment to this project and to the empowerment of women in Canada. So please join me in giving a very warm welcome to Rachel Notley. Well, good afternoon, everybody, and uh, and thank you, Kate, for that introduction. And and let me too offer my thanks to to Kate and my congratulations to Kate and to everybody at everybody at uh, Canada 2020, um, as well as to all your sponsors for managing to put together what what I really do believe is a, a very very important project and an important conversation. I have to say that I very much wish that the Council of the Federation looked a lot more like that group of women that was just announced. Maybe a little bit less like the cast list of Goodfellas. But um, anyway, that's what we're here to talk about. Now, as the most recently depremiered among us, uh, please... Please understand that if over the next few hours, if you catch me standing sort of uh, listlessly at a doorway, it's very possible that I'm still trying to riddle out how one opens those things by myself, so please help a sister out and um, walk me through it. Don't do it for me, for the love of God. Just uh, give me instructions. Um, but seriously, I, I am here to tell you that we need to be in this together and uh, that regardless of political stripes, and in fact, especially because we can share good ideas that work for women from one party to another, we have to do this together. So I'll warn you, though, right now, that that doesn't mean that I'll be limiting my remarks to only those things that we all agree on, because I also believe strongly that when we do that, we leave a number of meaningful solutions on the table. And given the state of women's participation in politics in Canada today, we simply can't afford to do that anymore. So allow me to begin by examining some of those well-understood and definitely universal factors that stand in the way of women participating fully in politics as a whole and in leadership positions in particular. Electoral politics in Canada, as we know, it's, it's structured in a way that tends to discourage women from taking on leadership positions, and that's for a number of reasons. The lifestyle is unpredictable often requiring a whole bunch of travel. The hours, we know, are much longer than most other types of work. And the nature of political work is it, it tends to overtake personal life obligations with social and outreach and relational obligations that supersede and interfere with family time. 
For instance, uh, the club of late-night Scotch drinkers is probably as vibrant now as it was 100 years ago. And uh, women are still, though, they're not invited into those clubs with the same frequency as men. But even where they are invited, um, they often can't accept the invitation because there's usually competing familial obligations that exist more for women than for men. And in a highly relational professional environment like politics, one's absence from these clubs can be just as damaging as attending them and refusing to buy around. So that's the problem. Politics is also about ideas, and it's about persuasion as it relates to these ideas. So it requires a, an underlying confidence in one's views and one's ability to express one's views in large rooms. And this is to be contrasted with, say, the more productive work in politics of policy research or organizational planning. So as an example, I just want to stop here for a second and ask if anyone here has had this experience that I've had. I essentially grew up in campaign offices, and I noticed a pattern very early on. At one end of the office would be a bunch of phones, a bank of phones, and the majority of people on those phones would be women. And at the other end of the office would be the manager's office, and the majority of people behind those closed doors were mostly or completely men. Men who would be passionately debating the campaign strategy, writing the speech, practicing the speech, and defining the message that we should be going into ads or leaflets. Now, I don't know, maybe that's just me, but I think that there may be a few in here that, that uh, have seen those campaign offices as well, and it speaks to this issue of the confidence of leading the communication. Now, politics is also about stepping up, just putting yourself out there, and basically going to people and asking them to agree with your own assessment of yourself that you are a person that many, many other people should choose to lead. The short word of this for, word for this, of course, is ego. Also, the nature of political debate is often very combative, and so it attracts people then who tend to be quite comfortable yelling at each other. So... <laughs> Overall, I, I'm wondering if anyone here is seeing a pattern. So in short, the opportunity is not equal, and the rules of the game are not constructed in a way to encourage participation where opportunity exists. Or to put another way, the rules of the game are not constructed by women, and they never have been. So we must work to make some of the most obvious process changes. That's what I think, and I think there's agreement on a lot of them. And in some cases, we already have. Within my own party, for instance, our plenary sessions uh, demand alternating speakers between genders. Our party gatherings must include childcare. In government, uh, we change the hours of the assembly to include more mornings and fewer evenings. As an aside, I must say I was also very pleased to hear about what happened here in Ottawa, the recent federal changes that allow MPs to take parental leave. But I would argue that many of these kind of process changes, while they're helpful, they really only amount to playing around the margins of the problem. So what more can we be doing? Now, personally, I find it helpful to think in analogies. Uh, bear with me, because these analogies are often very tortured, and I'm the only person that finds meaning in them. But, you know, <laughs> we'll see how this goes. I'm a runner, so we'll try that one. Imagine a race where half the runners enjoy the benefit of state-of-the-art high-tech running shoes, and the other half have been given Crocs to wear. <laughs> Separate and apart from how, uh, from how ugly that is, we also know that what turns out is that the first group of runners take off and they do very well, while only a fraction of the runners in the Crocs manage to keep up. Not only that, 
at the end of the race, the top finishers get to make the rules for the next race. Lo and behold, the distribution of high-tech runners becomes limited, and everyone else is told that in the next race, they'll be running in high heels. Now, not surprisingly, when the next race is complete, only one runner in high heels finishes in the top 10. Now, this is where I argue that up to now, we have been preoccupied with the following strategies. One, we've done a lot of celebrating that one high-heeled runner. Two, we've asked that high-heeled runner to talk about how they learned to run so well in high heels. Three, we've spent a lot of time trying to encourage other people to join the sport of high-heeled running. And finally, we've even developed programs to provide special training to high-heeled runners. But you know what we haven't done enough of yet? We haven't just demanded that everyone in the race be given their own freaking pair of running shoes. I acknowledge this might be construed as interfering in the free market of shoes, but so be it. More seriously, though, and overall, we have not seen tremendous success in removing barriers to women seeking political office in over 20 years, and it shows. As Kate's work in the No Second Chance podcast describes women's participation and leadership positions in Canada is tenuous, because in Canada, still, women are not equal. And I'm not just referring, of course, to politics. In fact, I would argue that the absence of women in politics is as much the symptom of the larger problem as it is the cause. In fact, it's both. Women hold far fewer positions of power throughout society. We do more work, most, most of which, or much of which, is unpaid. When we are paid, we're paid less. We're more likely to be poor. We're more likely to be victims of violence. The list goes on. And overall, inequality is a self-sustaining force. Like in my tortured analogy, inequality, in fact, breeds more inequality. These are the facts. And the facts, no matter how much we do not like them, are not actually partisan. But given that the interpretation of the facts will vary between political parties, the barriers that each of these facts represent and the corresponding possible solutions can be partisan. And that, I would suggest, needs to stop. If parties approached our democracy with the same assumptions and differences as they do the economy, the results would and do vary accordingly. Until every party that could take power um, have women on equal footing in their midst and at their helm, the social change that must occur to make it feasible for them to enter the field on an equal level uh, through whichever party will not be consistently or sustainably implemented. So we have this catch-22. To get more women in politics, we have to change society. To change society, we need to have more women in politics. So allow me to speak just a moment about the bigger picture pieces that I'd like to see discussed more universally across all parties. As much as any politician, myself very much included, loves a good wedge issue, these are things that I really wish we could see removed from that category. For instance, any initiative that reduces poverty helps women. The examples of that are countless. Any initiative that focuses on equality of result with respect to women rather than so-called equality of opportunity helps women. In this context, what that means is, is insisting that parties go into elections with an equal number of female candidates. Any initiative that resets the rule of the game for and by women helps women. 
And by this I mean calling out the, the norms which detract from reasoned debate and replace it with uh, uh, combative, personalized attacks. And finally, using my own experience as a guide, I want to specifically reference what I believe is probably the most transformational policy piece that will combat the inequality of women in society and through that politics. And in particular, I'm referring to universal, universal affordable, accessible, quality childcare. Now, I... I believe that this is the fundamental policy change that will invite more women in Canada into the economy, into civil society, and into politics. Moreover, it will invite them to participate in a way that naturally makes leadership an expected outcome. Now, I get that the pursuit of this kind of policy and this kind of childcare is not a universally cross-partisan uh, policy objective, but I really believe it should be. It is in other parts of the world, and you see the results. And there are so many examples here in Canada, though, of strong women putting their careers on hold for families, not just in politics, but in the business world, in law, in the public service, throughout. Women habitually trade career paths for family time. And even when that hiatus comes to an end 10 to 15 years later, many women will then find themselves ready to take on new challenges, only to discover that their workplace has moved on without them. And in my view, that's why women continue to be so chronically underrepresented in leadership positions. And as long as they're not there, the rules will be made by people who are not them. It's that simple. So, having outlined some of the specific political steps that we can take and some of the broader policy pieces we can implement, what did I do in my government? Now, this, my friends, is the part of the program where I get to abuse the fact that I've been asked to speak. And uh, you politely go along with it, thinking to yourself, ooh, she's still processing. Um, <laughs> which is true. Um, but that said, I'll try and keep it short. Let's start at the beginning. I made it clear that uh, we needed 50% or more of our candidates to be women. And so they were. As a, as a result, in 2015, more women were elected to government than ever before in Alberta, 48% to be exact. The same rule applied in our last election, and so even in opposition, 11 of our 24 MLAs, not quite 50%, are women, but we had more than 50% running. Two of our three new MLAs are women. When in government, we brought in Canada's first ever majority female cabinet. We had Alberta's first cabinet minister to give birth while in office, followed by Canada's first attorney general to give birth while in office. At one point, the lieutenant governor, the chief justice, the premier, the deputy premier, and the deputy minister to executive council were all women. We were intentional in the effort to ensure gender balance in appointments to our agencies, boards, and commissions. Over three years, Alberta went from having 32% women sitting on boards, agencies, and commissions to 54%. But our changes weren't limited to representational statistics. They extended to include the kind of policies that directly support the success of women in society. 
We instituted the highest minimum wage amongst subnational jurisdictions on the continent. We improved family leave in our labour laws. We significantly increased funding for women's shelters and provided greater legal rights for victims of domestic and sexual violence. We amended laws governing property distribution for common law relationships. We strengthened abortion laws and funded MIFA Gamiso. And we funded a series of programs that resulted in Alberta in the midst of a generational recession cutting the level of child poverty in half and securing by far the lowest level of child poverty in the country. And finally, we began the march towards affordable childcare by providing 7,500 childcare spaces at $25 a day and making a full rollout of affordable childcare our primary platform promise in the last election. Now, You may not have heard, but we didn't win the last election. Um, the number of women in the current government caucus has fallen back to historic levels, with 23% in their caucus and less than a third in cabinet. Indeed, my caucus and I are fond of observing that there are almost as many Jasons in that cabinet as there are women. <laughs> now, whether this is directly connected or not, we see legislative schedules now turned on their head, with standard sitting days stretching from 9 a.m. to 11 p.m., although Monday evening, for example, was extended at the call of the government house leader to 3 a.m. Why? Because my party is staying up to stop them from rigging up, ripping up the contracts and rolling back the wages of primarily female public servants. They're also looking into rolling back the minimum wage for liquor servers, again, who we know are also primarily women. And the future of our affordable childcare program is in limbo, as what little talk there is is steeped in words like choice, so it doesn't bode well. Now, I don't list these issues to relitigate the election, well, maybe just a teeny bit, but mostly not. <laughs> Rather, I mostly I point them out to show how quickly advances that we think have been made that help women can be reversed. All this being said, I also believe, though, that there are changes that we have made specifically support women that will likely tr survive the transition to a new government. And really, that is the normal reality of political progress. Uh, it's not linear. So two steps forward, one step back, as they say. But the key is to have more women waiting in the wings to take those next two steps forward for the issues that matter to getting women more involved in our societies and our communities. And as for me, well, I'm back to that quintessential role of the politician, working to persuade people that my ideas are good ones. So in that spirit, let me say this. If we do not make moves that collectively blast through this glass ceiling, serious progress for women that we've made could be lost. And I'm no longer talking just about night sittings and mat leave. I'm talking about the uh, paradigm-shifting policies that all women need, actions that give them the running shoes, if you will, to fully participate in our economy, our community, and as a result, our polity. Policies which, if women cycle back out of positions of power, immediately begin to slip down the priority list. So I'd like to close by exploring just one other new development. It's, it's very briefly. It's what I would characterize as the most revolutionary departure from the common set of facts from which politicians of different stripes typically and previously used to debate. And we're now moving into a new era where debating the best way forward for, for our province, our country, is, is no longer founded on a common understanding of the facts. And that is a concern because 
for many, many reasons, as you can all imagine, but I, it's a concern to this conversation because I believe it's going to result in women being less likely to step forward to enter politics. Uh, there's credible academic research out there that suggests that people who are most likely to seek leadership positions in politics are those who enjoy the game. And that people who get into politics because they're genu genuinely interested in policy become frustrated. And people who get in because they want to help people while they're good as constituency representatives, they don't end up uh, rising to leadership levels either. And I'd argue that the anecdotal evidence that Kate has uh, collected through her work suggests the notion and supports the notion that women generally tend to be pragmatic leaders who are focused more on problem solving than grandstanding and positioning. Although, personally, I think we can all look around a little bit and acknowledge we many of us done a little bit of grandstanding. But uh, overall... That's not the way we've all approached our government. But this strategy of problem solving as a means of earning support with the public is compromised if we continue to grow this tendency to talk straight past the facts. We shouldn't allow that to happen, and it's happening more and more, and I think we need to stop it. And in a situation like that, I wouldn't be surprised to see women being less likely to either choose to step in or to excel once they do. So I don't have a magical solution, I just raise that as a cautionary note because it's a trend that's both new and concerning and one that I believe deserves more attention. So allow me to wrap up with this. I realize that not everyone will agree with the solutions that I'm proposing, but at the same time, we've not really been successful at growing the number of female leaders in politics. So we simply have to start looking at strategies that we've been reluctant to consider up to this point. By not approaching this complicated problem with resolve and sharing good ideas from women uh, across the political spectrum from whatever parties, the majority of clear solutions will continue to be brushed aside and passing over methods that work because of partisan disagreement. What we need to do then is do what we need to do to make real change and, and find real parity. So please go home to your parties and demand parity at the mic. Demand a results-based approach to gender parity in the nomination process and fight for equality for women throughout society in meaningful ways. And when we see concrete solutions to a barrier that we all face as women being implemented by another party or even in another jurisdiction, we must do everything that we can to replicate it here so that eventually enough women populate the highest offices of all parties, so the work we do will benefit all women and that it will not disappear when governments change hands. Thank you all very, very much for uh, the opportunity to speak with you today, and I look forward to having some more super, super nerdy political conversations with you over the next couple of hours. Thank you. Coming up on No Second Chances. I think that there is a generation of young women out there who almost don't need our advice because they are so passionate and they are so strong and they are so proud and we need to support them. And so what I would say is keep growing your voice, grow your alliances and don't shut up, just keep talking. We need more contrary young women out there talking about what matters to them because a lot of things matter to them. Every one of you and every woman you know in your life should consider seeking public office, either at the municipal level, 
the, the provincial level or the federal level. You don't need to say, can I do it? We run our communities, we run our homes, we run our communities, we run our countries. It's all a matter of scale. <laughs> it truly is. No Second Chances is a special project of Canada 2020, written and hosted by me, Kate Graham. It's produced by Sarah Turnbull and I, and recorded and edited by Aaron Reynolds. Our music is composed and performed by Meredith Yeyenos. Mira Ahmad is the Communications and Operations Manager at Canada 2020, which is led by Executive Director Alex Patterson. And this project would not be possible without the support of MasterCard. <laughs>